This morning we begin a brand new series with that question, who's your one? We're talking about what it means for us to focus on one person that God's placed in our lives so that we can share the gospel with them, so we can communicate the love of Jesus Christ and see them come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we begin our series in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. And I want to talk to you on this sermon subject today, on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. That phrase is probably familiar to you. You recognize it as one of the phrases in Jesus' prayer, what we know as the Lord's Prayer, when he prays, God, would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so my prayer is that God's will is done in my life, in your life, in his church, that his will is done right here as it is in heaven. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, the Bible tells us about Jesus reaching, calling his first disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And we're going to talk about what it means to reach that one person that God's put in your life with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you came in this morning, you received a booklet as well as a bookmark. The booklet and the bookmark go together with this series. It's 30 days of prayer, and uh, as you take this prayer guide, there's a place for you to pray each and every day. There's a place for you to journal. The scriptures on the back of this bookmark correspond to the scriptures that we'll be reading in this booklet. And there's a place on the end for you to tear off, for you to say, this is my one. This is the one person that God's put on my heart, that God's put on my mind, that I know in my sphere of influence, this is someone that needs to know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you walk through our lobby, you'll notice a display in the lobby. There we have a display set up right in the middle of the lobby. And uh, it is a phenomenal, our our team, Stephen Weaver, built this thing. And our team helped put it together. And uh, it's a phenomenal display. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about, about that. So here's what we're going to do. Today, I'm going to begin to ask each and every one of you to pray for one person in your life who you know needs to come to faith in Christ. When God's put that name on your mind and on your heart, you're going to get a white ping pong ball. You see this white ball, white ping pong ball. And you're going to have a Sharpie. There are going to be ping pong balls out there. You're going to get one as you leave today. And you're going to write their initials on this ping pong ball, and you're going to drop it into our display. You'll see where you can do that. And so everybody here ought to be praying about one name that God's put on your heart, some person that God's put in your life that you can share the gospel with. And so you're going to fill that out, you're going to drop it in, and then when you have the opportunity to share the gospel with that one person that God's put in your life, when you have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus, you're going to take an orange ping pong ball and you're going to write their initials on it and you're going to drop it into display. So display starts to fill up with all of these names of people for whom we're praying and then you'll begin to see all of these orange balls are going to represent the people for whom we have already shared the gospel. We've shared the gospel with certain individuals. And then, believe it or not, As you share the gospel with people, guess what God does? God is going to begin to save people. Maybe he's going to save your one, the one person that you're praying for, the one person in your sphere of influence in your life. And so when someone, when someone's one comes to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have gold ping pong balls. You write their initials on it. You drop them in there. And it is going to be a wonderful visual reminder of how God is at work and how God wants to work in your life, in my life, and through our church to help reach people that he's put in our path. 
you do know that it's not too much to ask for you to share the gospel with one person. We might think there's so many lost people. There are thousands of people who need to hear the gospel and thousands of people who need to be saved and hundreds of people at my school or or so many people at my work. I don't know what to do. We're asking you to identify one person. Now, we've taught you multiple ways to share the gospel. We've taught you how to share the gospel through the three circles, that life on mission. There's an app that you can use on your phone. Maybe you, know, maybe you need to share the gospel. Maybe you know how to share the gospel through the Romans Road or, or John 3.16 or faith evangelism or the four spiritual laws. It doesn't matter. Whatever method you use to share the gospel, we're just asking you to tell people about Jesus. Tell others about Jesus, that one person that God puts on your heart or on your mind. Now this morning in Matthew chapter 4, as we begin this series, I'm preaching on the subject on earth as it is in heaven. Let's begin reading and then look at the example of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. The Bible says, while walking by the sea of Galilee, he, meaning Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Remember this morning, the power is in the perfect word of God. As we begin this morning, I want to play a little game. You ever heard the game word association? I'm going to say a word, and you're going to think of something. What immediately pops into your head? So when I say the word Republican, what pops into your head? Don't answer out loud, okay? When I say the word Democrat, what pops into your head? Don't answer out loud. Let's leave politics for a moment. When I I say Starbucks, what immediately comes to mind? Ah, okay. All right. When I say Chick-fil-A, what do you think of? Chicken. You can't go there today. It's closed. I probably should have said Zaxby's. When I say, uh, when I say CrossFit, what do you think of? Workout. Somebody said crazy people. I heard that one. Just kidding. What about, what about millennial? What do you think of when you hear the word millennial? Did somebody say YOLO? Is that what you said? Oh, cell phones, okay. This is pretty good. Y'all are meaning to do this more often. Y'all are responding well. Now, don't, don't answer this one, but what do you think of when you hear the word Christian? Think about that for a moment. We have our own ideas, our preconceived notions of what a Christian is or what a Christian isn't, but do you know our culture, our society has built a kind of an idea They have an understanding of what they think or what they believe Christians are. And it may or may not be what we want them to think or what we want them to believe. But you know the Bible, it's very interesting. The Bible only uses the word Christian three times. Did you know that? In fact, the word was used as an insult in the beginning. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26 that that there they were first called Christians at Antioch. Why? They They were using it as an insult. You think that your little Christ running around like your Messiah, like like Jesus. But the Bible uses the word disciple 281 times. 
281 times, it uses the word disciple to mean someone who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say the word disciple should be a far more accurate term to describe those of us who say we're following Jesus. Because the word Christian is used so much in our society today, it's become diluted. It means hardly anything anymore. And to some people, they have negative opinions when they, when they hear that word. And so the question is, what does it mean to be a genuine follower of Jesus, a true Christian? And what does it mean to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? And so that's what we're going to ask today as we look at Matthew chapter 4, as we see the calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. First of all, I want you to notice that Jesus calls us to follow him. If we're going to be followers of Christ, if we're going to be disciples, then we must listen to Jesus and respond to his invitation. What does he say? He comes to Peter and to Andrew, and he sees them casting their net into the sea, and he says, follow me. The Bible says they left their nets and followed him. He sees James and John, the sons of Zebedee Dudah. I know you wanted to say that when you heard his name. Sons of Zebedee, James and John. And he says to them, follow me. And the Bible says they're there with their father, mending their nets. Jesus called them, and the Bible says they left their father, they left their boat, and they followed Jesus. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a historical background, because as you read this, you'll think, that seems strange that, that some guy walks by these guys, they've never seen him before, and he says, follow me, and they just up and follow Jesus. It seems strange, and it would kind of be strange if you're just sitting on a park bench one day, staring at your cell phone, or reading a newspaper, or drinking your Starbucks coffee, and someone says, hey, follow me. And you were to get up and just follow this person. Seems strange. Well, let me give you a little bit of context. Every Jewish boy began Torah school at the age of five. Now, Torah is just the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they began to study, and they would study the Torah. Man, it was intense study, all types of memorization. And the best students went on to study the remainder of the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament. And the rest would return home to work with their families. And so if you were the best student, you got to stay and you got to study more of the Bible. It was a very prestigious honor in those days to be invited to study with a rabbi. And about the age of 17, if a boy decided, I want to make, I want to make it my career to study the Bible. I want to be a rabbi when I grow up. About the age of 17, if he wanted to do that, his next step would be to go find a rabbi and to sit down at the feet of a rabbi. Interesting. When he sat down at the feet of the rabbi, here he sits, here's the rabbi. That was an invitation of the boy to the rabbi saying, I want to be your disciple. I want to learn from you. And the rabbi then, if someone would sit in front of him, he'd begin to ask him questions. He'd quiz him on his knowledge of the Bible. And if he liked the answers and thought this boy had potential, he would say, you can follow me. You can be my disciple. I will be your rabbi. 
Well, that was reserved for the best of the best. I mean the cream of the crop. It was only those who knew the Bible, only those who knew the Old Testament, only those who had all the right answers and had everything together. And then they would begin to follow this rabbi and they not only wanted to learn biblical knowledge, do you know they sought to copy their rabbi in every single way. They would study the way he walked. They would study the way he talked. They would study every single thing about him, the way he taught the Bible. They would study all of his mannerisms. Their job was to look like talk like, act like, live like their rabbi. Everything. And so here they are following this rabbi and the greatest compliment you could give to a disciple was, you are just like your teacher. When I see you, I see your teacher. I see your rabbi. And so when Jesus comes to Peter and Andrew, James and John and they're fishing, what does that tell you about these four guys? They didn't make the cut. What are they doing? They're not teaching Old Testament. They're fishing. They're, They're back in the family business. So it tells you that these guys didn't make the cut, that they weren't uh they weren't brought in by a rabbi, they aren't being taught more of the Old Testament, they're in the family business, they weren't they weren't the number one team, okay? These guys were the B team. So when Jesus goes to choose his followers, he immediately goes not to who the world thinks is the best of the best, but he goes to the B team. He goes to those that didn't make the cut. He goes to those that that the rabbi said, you're not good enough. And when Jesus says to these guys, follow me, he's saying, I want you to be with me. I want you to watch how I talk. I want you to watch how I walk. I want you to watch how I love people. I want you to watch how I teach. And I want you to emulate and imitate my ways. So when Jesus calls us to be a disciple, it's more than saying, check the box, I believe in Jesus. He's asking us, will you follow me? Will you live like I lived, talk like I talk, walk like I walk, and love like I love? That's what it means to be a disciple. When the Bible uses that word in the New Testament, it's one that has attached himself to someone else wanting to do everything their master did. So let that sink in. When Jesus uses those without much potential or personal power, who gets the glory when God does a great work? It's not those fishermen who didn't make the cut. It's the rabbi. It's the master. It's the teacher. John MacArthur says this, God skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, and Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar, the leader. He chose men so ordinary it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts. Jesus chose the B team because his work in the world wouldn't come from their abilities, but it It would come from what he could do through them. And so he chooses us, not because of our strengths, our gifts, or our abilities, but because what he wants to do comes from his power, not ours. It's for his glory, not ours. And so people with a lot of talent and a lot of ability would really only get in the way of what Jesus was trying to do. He taught that that one of the ways to be the strongest was to be the weakest. One of the ways to be the best was to be a servant. It's counterintuitive to the way that we live. And so think about this. God wants to use you. He wants to use you in your family. 
He wants to use you in your workplace. He wants to use you at your school. He wants to use you on your ball field. He wants to use you in your neighborhood. He doesn't need your ability. He needs your availability. He needs you to say, yes, Lord, I will obey whatever you've called me to do. We've often said he doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. So the question is, have you made yourself available? There are so many ways that we provide for you here at Second Baptist Church. So many ways for you to get plugged in, engaged, and involved in growing in your relationship with Christ. It's not enough just to come to church every once in a while or even to show up in this room every single Sunday. The way to become a disciple, growing in your faith deeper and stronger, is to get connected and plugged in, to be a part of a life group on a consistent basis, building relationships with others. To be in ministry within this church, serving in our kids' ministry or our student ministry, our senior adults' ministry, our worship ministry, or our victory sports ministry. To get engaged and to serve within the church and then to go beyond the walls and serve beyond the church, sharing the gospel with other people. We provide you so many ways. Listen, disciples are not those who simply sit and get their heads filled with information. They are willing to do something about what they've learned. God's calling us not just to sit, listen, and learn. He's calling us to step up and to live. If you're serious about being a disciple, you're going to be plugged into a life group. You're going to want to have a relationship with others. You're going to want to grow in your relationship with the Lord. You want an avenue where you can serve the body of Christ. You want to share the love of Jesus Christ with those who need to hear. If we're going to be like Jesus, then we've got to pay attention to the things that he did and the things he's calling us to do. Jesus calls us to follow him. Secondly, Jesus calls us to forsake all else. The Bible tells us that when Jesus calls these four men, they left everything and followed him. Specifically, Peter and Andrew were fishing. They were casting their nets into the sea when Jesus called them. James and John were in the boat with their father. The Bible says they were mending their nets, so they were getting ready to fish. But the Bible says something very interesting here. When he called them, look at this, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And then it says, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now the Bible is very specific. And I want you to know, we believe the Bible is the word of God, the inspired, inerrant, perfect Word of God. And so there are no words in here on accident. There are two things specifically the Bible says they left. They first left fishing and they also left their father. These two things represent two of the biggest reasons we tell God we can't do what he's asked us to do or we can't go where he's asked us to go. First of all, we'll talk about our family. God, I I know that you may be calling me to do this, or you may be calling me to share the gospel with my family. You may be calling me, but we'll talk about our family, which represents in this instance Zebedee, the father of James and John, but also it represents our most important relationships. And we'll begin to make excuses. God, I can't share the gospel with my best friend. What if they reject the gospel and turn on me? I can't share the gospel with my mom or my dad. I don't know how they respond. I can't share the gospel with my aunt or my uncle, my brother or my sister, because I don't know how they'd respond. And we use this as an excuse so as not to obey Jesus instead of doing exactly what he's called us to do. Here, we've got to be willing. We've got to be willing to obey God. Even if we think it might harm those 
that are closest to us. We've got to be willing to, to be obedient. Not only that, but it talks about our careers or our professions. What did they leave behind? They not only left their father, but they left fishing. That's all they knew. They didn't make the cut to be the disciples of the rabbi. All they knew was fishing. And they were good at it. They were professionals. They could make a living. That's all they knew. And the Bible says immediately, immediately, they left their nets, they left the boat, and they followed Jesus. So so maybe God will tell you, maybe God will tell you, you know, I'm putting something in your heart, I'm putting something in your life, and I'm asking you to go across the globe to plant your life somewhere as a missionary and share the gospel with people who've never heard of Jesus. And you'd say, oh, no, 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 God would never do that. God would never ask me to do anything like that. Are you sure? Or am I taking my own preconceived notions or desires and laying them over the will of God in my life? God would never ask me to leave my family. He'd never ask me to leave my home. He'd never ask me to go somewhere I've never been to share the gospel. Well, I I want you to know the Bible is full and history is full of people who are willing to abandon everything to follow Christ no matter what. They wanted to be faithful. They wanted to be obedient. History tells us of a man named John Payton. John Payton was born in Scotland in 1824. He was born into an extremely poor but very godly home. By all accounts, he was an incredibly successful pastor in Glasgow, Scotland. He had a great growing church. He was making a significant impact right there in Glasgow. So significant that when he began to tell elders of the Church of Scotland that he felt like God was calling him to missions, they began to scoff at him and say, why would you leave what God is doing in Glasgow to go to the South Pacific? God called him to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific, a very dangerous, ungodly place. It was filled with cannibals. It was filled with infanticide. It was also filled with widow sacrifice. It was a culture of death. In other words, when a husband would die, his widow he left behind would also be killed so they could be together in the afterlife. It was an incredibly terrible, wicked, ungodly place. And John Payton said, God's calling me to go to the New Hebrides Islands to share the gospel. And everybody mocked him and said, how crazy are you that you want to leave a great church and go to the mission field in the middle of nowhere where people have already been killed for their faith. In 1858, soon after his arrival, John Payton lost his wife and his newborn child. His autobiography talks of constant sickness, threats upon his life, overwhelming grief, and loneliness. There were no doctors. There was no way of escape. Beyond that, the constant threat from the tribal members, they would chase him, try to take his life. The tribal leaders would camp out and try everything they could to to kill him. Frequently, he had to run for his life. All of this, and everyone back home in Scotland mocking him for leaving his great church to go to the mission field. Patton said in unison, pastors and parishioners alike offered a number of arguments against such a foolhardy task. Let the reader here take note. The criticisms the church attached, a great slew of proof texts and support, they sounded spiritual in every way. One of of Patton's most famous quotes. Everyone told him, if you go 
to take the gospel to the New Hebrides Islands, you will die and be eaten by cannibals. Listen to what he says. If I die here in Glasgow, I shall be eaten by worms. If I can but live and die serving the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or worms. For in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Wow. What are the results of this foolhardy task? When Peyton arrived at the New Hebrides Islands, the population of those who knew Christ as Savior was zero. A hundred years later, after he had lived, spent his life, and died. United States estimates in 2015 the population of the New Hebrides Islands to be somewhere around 272,000 people. And 82% of those profess faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. 82%. Now I understand population statistics might be skewed one way or another because a vast majority of Americans say they're Christians, but they might not know what it means to be a disciple. But John Payton went to a place that had no knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of these islands now profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder Charles Spurgeon called John Payton the king of the savages. God called him, and he obeyed. Believe me, I want you to understand this morning, I can't promise you if you follow Jesus, he'll never call you to do anything hard because the Bible says he calls us to come and die. In other words, die to ourselves, die to our preferences, die to our own desires. But what I can promise you is whatever you leave behind to follow the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't even begin to compare to the presence and the power of Christ in your life. Jesus calls us to follow, and that means there's something we must forsake. Listen to his promise in the Gospel of Luke as he answers Peter. Peter said, see, we've left our homes In other words, we've left everything and we followed you. And Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. In other words, whatever we feel like we leave behind for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus absolutely knows. He cares and he sees and he promises that the blessing in this life of his presence and the blessing of reward in life to come. Jesus calls us to follow. He calls us to forsake all else. Jesus calls us to find others. We see this in verse 3. Jesus calls us to find others. What does he say? He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Following Jesus means that you subject everything in your life to his lordship. Now think about that. Many of us say that we are Christians, but have we submitted everything in our lives to the Lordship of Christ that I am willing to forsake all and follow Jesus. Just like Jesus, the master, the rabbi, was a fisher of men. He was fishing for souls. He called these disciples to be fishers of men. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is an important and essential part of being a disciple. It's not something that only a few of us do. If we say we're following our master, it's something that every believer is called to do. Evangelism is not the task of some select few special force Christians. 
It's the task of every single follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single disciple is called to follow Jesus. So how do I prove I'm a disciple? The Bible tells you, how do I know that I'm a disciple? By bearing fruit. John chapter 15 and verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus tells us how to bear fruit in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19 and 20. He tells us, go therefore into all the world. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the world, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. Go make disciples to everywhere, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the command. Now, In the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, there's only one verb in the Greek. In our English, it seems like there are a lot of verbs. Going, making disciples, baptizing, teaching. But there's only one verb. And not to get too technical, every other word in the sentence is a participle that hangs on that one verb. And do you know what the one verb is? We are called to make disciples. That leads to our going and teaching and proclaiming and baptizing. That leads to us going everywhere to share the message of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 19 tells us the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So if Jesus is our master and we are his disciples, if he came to seek the lost and to see them saved, what's our responsibility? If we're going to be like our rabbi, we are called to see people saved, to seek them out and bring them to Jesus. In his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman says this. When will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Nor can occasional prayer meetings or training classes for Christian workers to do the job. Listen to this. Individual women and men are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not something, it is someone It is you. It is me. Church, listen to me this morning. You are God's method. God wants to see every nation, tribe, tongue, every neighbor, every friend, every family member, every co-worker, every classmate. God desires that not any perish, but all come to repentance. And so how does this happen? God's method is not another evangelism training. It is the people of God getting on their heart, one person in my life that I know needs Jesus. Disciple making is simply teaching someone to follow Jesus like you're following Jesus. And so, I'm going to ask you if you would begin to identify one person in your life that you know needs Jesus. As you leave today, in just a moment, our ushers will be at the doors, and they're going to have a white ping pong ball. And you say, well, I don't know, I don't know who I should pray for yet. Take it with you and begin to pray that God would put someone on your heart. I don't know who my one is yet. Take it with you. And you say, well, maybe I have two. That's fine. We're not putting a maximum number on the people that we want to see come to Christ, but we are asking that everybody at least do the minimum and begin to pray for one person. Could you imagine what it would look like if every one of the people who attend here every single weekend did something so simple as to say, God, would you give me 
one person that I could bring to Jesus. Just one. What would happen in your life, in your family, at Second Baptist Church and in this community if we really bought into this vision? God, would you give me one person I could bring to Jesus? What if every one of our life groups focused on this every single Sunday from, from, from the kids all the way up to the senior adults? What if everyone said, God, we want to reach somebody for Jesus? What if each one committed to reach one? Maybe today... You would say, Pastor, the reality is I am not a disciple of Christ. I don't don't have a relationship with God. There's never been a time in my life where I've repented of my sins and I've trusted Christ. I've placed my faith and trust in him. So maybe today you are the one who needs to come to Jesus In just a moment, I'm going to pray. We'll stand and we'll sing. I'm going to share the gospel with you. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to Christ. And I want you to hear me, church. A lot of times when we begin the invitation, we take that as our cue to step out or to go somewhere. It's the most important time in the entire service. It's the most important time. If there's an emergency and you've got to go somewhere, that's one thing. But if it's your habit every time I say stand and pray that you're going to leave, I want to encourage you to stay and pray. Pray that God would begin to save souls. And pray that God would put someone on our heart, on my heart, on your heart. One person. Who's your heart?